Uh, praise the Lord. Uh, God, praise you. Praise him from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and your waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. And established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. You sea creatures in all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist. Stormy winds fulfilling his words. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His name is above earth and heaven, for he raised up a horn for his salvation. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in the mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him for his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipes. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. When Jesus' enemies crucified him, it was their intent to afflict upon him every imaginable form of pain possible. Not only did they scourge him with a Roman whip, and not only did they nail him to a cross that he might die a slow death of asphyxiation, but they hurled insults at him and taunted him so as to try to destroy him emotionally and spiritually. The greatest insult was to taunt him that God had abandoned him. In Matthew 27, 42, they said, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. People often wonder, where is God? Where was God's voice? Where was God's Affirmation of his son at the cross, and the answer is, God did speak, and Easter is God's response to the cross and to all the mocking. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the ascension of Jesus Christ to the throne in heaven is God's response to the mocking of Matthew 27. God was silent only for a short while, and then he spoke in the greatest way possible. Our text, Ephesians 1, today. That power, resurrection power, is the same as the mighty strength that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. The world despised Jesus, but God exalted him to the highest place, declaring that everything that Jesus said was true. Not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but seated him on his throne. All the priests in the tabernacle and, and uh, all the meeting places 
in synagogues. Since then, all, all the priests have never been allowed to sit in the temple because they were always busy. But Jesus Christ was allowed to sit as an indication that everything that was necessary to be done for your salvation has been finished. His sitting is a reminder your salvation is complete. Jesus sitting by the Father is also an indicator that he's equal to God. Whenever you go to a courtroom in the city and the judge enters, what does, the, what does the, the, the bailiff say? All rise. We have to stand in the presence of judges and kings and rulers and presidents. Jesus does not stand in the presence of God. He sits because he is fully equal to God. And God said in the Old Testament that this is the way it was going to be, this promise of Christ sitting as a statement of his victory. Psalm 110, sit, this is the father to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You remember the battle in the Old Testament when five kings from five cities came against Joshua and the people of God and by the Lord's grace, God's people conquered, and this is what God told Joshua to do to the five kings. In Joshua 11, come here and put your feet on the necks of those kings. That was just an indicator of the fulfillment of Psalm 110. What is Jesus Christ doing in heaven right now? He is seated on his throne, and his feet are on the necks of all evil powers in the universe. There are going to be many battles, many battles on earth until the final battle when Jesus casts the false prophet and Satan himself and all demons in a torment of burning fire. There will be many, many battles, but the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ, according to Ephesians 1, is firmly established and will never be moved. He is seated on his throne and his feet rest on the necks of evil powers. In Daniel chapter 7, he had a vision of this glorious kingdom. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was like a son of man, Jesus' favorite designation of himself in the gospels, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days, the father, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Look at the hope that is given to us in Ephesians chapter 1 regarding the certainty of your salvation and interest in the city of God. This is what we've seen so far. God chose us. Christ died for us. The Spirit lives, us and it lives in us, and now... The king of history reigns over all the powers that seek to destroy us. So now having established that Jesus Christ is the invincible ruler of the universe, now we come into the main text of our study today, which concludes Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 22, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
You're going to see with me today that verse 23 introduces us to one of the most breathtaking thoughts in all of Scripture, one that's very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. In order to get there, I want to set up the, the main two points that, are, that come out of these two verses. Number one, the church is Christ's body. And number two, Christ's body is incomplete. God so loves the church that he refers to it here in Ephesians 1 and elsewhere in Scripture as his own body. When Jesus descended from heaven to earth, he took on a body, a human body. And everything he did, he, he did. He taught through that body, ate through that body, laughed through that body, he did miracles through that body, and he suffered through that body. And now that Jesus has returned to heaven, he still has a body. Not one, but many, many bodies. The bodies of every believer that's filled with the Spirit compose and are eternally linked, mystically linked together to form one body. The body of Christ, which here in Ephesians is called the church. So today, Jesus has a mouth and a tongue. It's the church. has hands and he has feet. It is the church. And through those hands and feet, whatever happens in the world, and it will be much, Whatever God does in this world, he will only do through the church, his body. There are many verses in the Bible that tells us how Jesus cares about his church. One of the most unusual, but really maybe the most relevant, is found in the book of Acts when Saul was hating on the church, destroying the church, and Look what Jesus said to Saul when he confronted him in Acts chapter 9. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I, you're reading that, you're thinking because of the way the chapter starts. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against who? The Lord's disciples. And yet Jesus said, you touch my church and you touch me. Why are you persecuting me. And then, of course, Jesus talked about our care for hurting believers, for the sick and the hungry believers and for imprisoned believers. Jesus said, whatever you do to any believer, whatever you do to any brother of mine, you have done to me. So you touch me, you touch the church, you show kindness to a member of Christ's body, and you show kindness to Christ. I'm trying to make the point of how linked Jesus Christ, the head, is with his body. There's no separation. You do it to the body. You do it to Christ. You do it for Christ. You do it for his body. So that's point number one. Jesus Christ has a body. It's the church. Point number two, Christ's body, that precious body that we just looked at, this is, this is the breathtaking one, the body of Jesus Christ, his body, is incomplete. 
I wouldn't say that if the text hadn't said it. Ephesians 1, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This filling has not yet occurred. It is occurring and is even occurring through this church service today. But there is right now a cosmic incompleteness about Jesus. Because his body is incomplete Jesus Christ considers himself through his body as incomplete. And this completion will only occur through the church. I love how John Calvin says this. I would have not felt quite the confidence to be so bold as to say what I just said had I, had I not seen what such a thoughtful, brilliant mind has said. But Calvin says, unless he is united to us the Son of God does not wish to be regarded as whole. That's how close the head and the body are in the minds of God. The fullness of the body of Christ is the filling up of Christ himself. If a man bought a wife, if a man bought a house, be careful there. <laughs> If a man bought house for his fiancée and renovated it, fixed it up, that man would say, my house is incomplete until she, the unbought wife, <laughs> my house is incomplete until my fiancée and I get married and she moves in. My house is incomplete. Jesus Christ says there is an incompleteness about me until my church is filled up. You're not separating head and body in the New Testament. They're one now. Church is incomplete. Jesus says, I'm incomplete. This is the way Arthur Pink says it. There cannot be a redeemer. Just see, connection. Can't be a redeemer without redeemed. Can't be a shepherd without sheep. Can't be a bridegroom without an unbought bride. And there can't be a living head without a living body. So let me be clear. Jesus in himself is infinitely complete. And he is completely finished paying the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But his body, the church to which he now is eternally linked, is incomplete, making the body and head likewise incomplete. And there are many areas in the world that still need to be filled up with the glory, the knowledge of the glory of Christ before the body and head together will be full. And this is why I'm so grateful in India through rice bowls, 1,400 children a day receive three meals and the safety of shelter and education and spiritual nourishment in the, in the Christian scriptures. And that God is filling up his incomplete body through children in India. That's how he's doing it. And he's doing it through his blessing on his Church.
And one day that whole mission will be complete. We love this verse in Habakkuk. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But that hasn't happened yet completely. The glory of God is going out to all parts of the earth through the witness of the church. God is using the church to fill up the incomplete body and to even witness to all the universe the knowledge of Christ limitless, unimaginable, immeasurable worth through the church. All of the universe is seeing the declaration, hearing the declaration of the worth. That's why people go to India. That's why they go to Africa. That's why they go to China. That's why they go to the inner city here to declare the worth of Christ. I love how John Piper says this. God is in a public relations project of universal proportions. And that is a well-supported concept here in Ephesians 1 that God aims to fill all of the universe with the knowledge of the worth and the power and the wisdom and the love of Christ. And God aims to make that declaration known through the church. It's like God said, I'm raising my son from the dead and for the next 2,000 years I'm going to fill the church with my spirit and the church for 2,000 plus years is going to declare to every inhabitant on earth and all the rulers on earth and all the rulers in heaven and hell the infinite worth of Christ. I told you when we say that we're here to applaud God, this is what we're doing. Fulfilling Ephesians 1, declaring the glory and the worth of Christ to all the powers of the world. You make light of the church, and you make light of God's plan to broadcast the worth of His Son to the world. People have often asked me about my passion, and sometimes I'll, I'll rewatch sermons on Sunday afternoon just to learn to do things better. And sometimes I feel like, gosh, maybe I was a little too loud or whatever, but I'll tell you why all the, why all the intensity in sermon preparation and why all the, the passion in, in sermon presentation is because when I'm done today, God the Father will have looked at me and He will look at you and there will be an assessment of how well we did of proclaiming to all the powers of the world the worth of Christ. So I don't think it's just a sermon. I don't think it's just a song. I don't think it's just holding a baby, teaching children, leading a small group, running wires, Operating cameras, I think it's all a declaration to the world, the worth of Jesus Christ. There's no higher calling in all of the world than to tell the universe of the matchless worth of Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that in every square inch of the universe. That's what's happening right now. Paul builds on this. We'll look at it more, but I just got to open the door in Ephesians chapter 3 where he really makes this clear. Verse 10, his intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to 
rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wisdom that we're making known to all rulers in the universe, the wisdom is Jesus Christ crucified for the redemption of his bride. That's the wisdom that God saved the world through the death of King Jesus. So how is God? This is what's happening. We're here today. We're worshiping, applauding God. Hope you never forget that statement. We're applauding God so that all inhabitants of the earth, all rulers of the earth, and all rulers, and these are evil rulers in Ephesians 3. They're just like the evil rulers in Ephesians 1. Same use of the word ruler. We're declaring to all authority and power, there is no one like Jesus Christ. And that happens through the church. I love how John Piper says that Christ fills the universe with his glory by showing the universe his church, his body. How, look at this. This is precious. How he chose her. In other words, the universe is watching today how he chose her. All the powers in the universe are seeing this today. How Jesus chose the church how he destined her, how he came for her and taught her and suffered for her and died for her and rose for her and reigns for her, how he called her and justified her and cleansed her and kept her and will raise her and glorify her and satisfy her forever and ever with himself. And all the powers of the universe are watching this today. Good angels are learning the wisdom of God, his love for the church, and evil powers are learning about the worth of Christ that he would die, how worthy he is that he would die for such a person as me, such a person as you. Nothing points to the magnificence of Jesus as his abilities to birth and nurture and sustain the church forever. And this is the message of Christ's great love for the church. His plan to raise the church up and make this message known against all of the forces that oppose our witnessing, preaching, singing, and teaching. You ever feel, do you ever feel like there's a battle going on? Let me tell you why, there, why you feel there's a battle. You say, man, I just, I feel so harassed. Why do I feel so harassed in life? Get that rate. If I wouldn't have spent all my money on a bride, I could have bought a good mic. <laughs> Why do you feel like there's such a battle going on every day? Because all of the spiritual forces that are against Christ are against you. Proclaiming this message of Christ's supremacy. All of the powers of hell and all evil rulers throughout the universe are against you. And they're saying to you, Christ is not worthy of this. 
He's not worthy of your coming. He's not worthy to sit alone on that throne. They are telling you this. Those powers are harassing you. They will suggest to you that your business is worthy to be on the throne. Your family is worthy to be on the throne. Your time, your money is worthy to be on the throne, but not Jesus. Those powers will tell you that your pleasure, your comfort, your safety, your self-protection is worthy to be on the throne. Your despair is worthy to be on the throne. Your fear is worthy of being on the throne. Your self-pity have a right to the throne. And they're definitely suggesting to you this, the worship of Christ is the week's greatest waste of time. When it is the very purpose by which, for which you have been created and redeemed. This. The proclamation of Christ's worth in his church to all the powers of the universe. It's a very real battle and that's why you feel harassed. The daily battle is intense and it's overwhelming, but the fullness of Christ will one day fill all things. Even to the point that on every wall of hell will be written the words, Jesus Christ is King, the rightful ruler of all. Every square inch of the universe one day will be filled with the glory, the knowledge, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And the fullness of God is so important, that's why he's given the church Paul's final prayer, a prayer for resurrection power. That's why he's praying for us so that we'll not give up in this mission. Ephesians 1, I pray that you may know incomparably great power. That mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, and dominion. Why do we have resurrection power? Why did he do it? So that we will finish the message, the, the, the message and the mission of proclaiming to all of the earth the worth of Christ. That's why you have resurrection power, so you won't quit. Listen, the same power that raised him from the dead, seated him on his throne, and put his feet on the necks of all evil powers. That's your power given to you so you won't quit until the knowledge of the glory of Christ is proclaimed throughout all of earth and one day the universe itself. God will grant his church every power that's necessary for this to come about. All things are under the feet of Christ. And God will orchestrate, because all things are under the feet of Christ, God will orchestrate every event in industry and politics and medicine and music and arts and sports, all preaching, all singing, all serving, all suffering, all dying, so that the church will be able to complete its mission all resurrection power is given for the benefit of the church to complete its mission. The entire plan of God depends upon the church completing its mission of testifying to all the earth the glory and worth of Jesus Christ. And the church is going to be triumphant because the mission is so important to God. 
But increasingly in our day, there are many people who belong to Christ. Let me just say this. They claim they belong to Christ, but shamelessly, shamelessly boast, I don't need the church. I can do this on my own. After all of this in Ephesians 1, they're saying, I don't need this. I don't need to be a part of this. You can't read the Bible and say that. Every believer is integrated into the body of Christ, mutually dependent, so that the body as a whole can fulfill this glorious purpose. It's becoming increasingly popular in our culture to say, I don't need the church. Matter of fact, it's increasingly popular to say, I'm not going to church because the church is too flawed. I mean, I, I think I more than ever, anybody know how flawed the church is. I mean, I've been pastoring for 33 years. I've seen my own flaws. I've seen the flaws of many believers, grotesque flaws. But I want to say this. The church may be an ugly bride at times, but it is Christ's bride. And it's the only instrument through which God will fulfill his great purpose in history is through the church. The mission will be filled with immeasurable challenges and oppositions and tears and momentary loss. But our efforts will never be in vain. Everything done for the cause of Christ matters. $7 a month to that building program matters. Nothing is small. Nothing will be wasted God's plan to use the church to spread the knowledge of Christ will succeed. In every sphere of life, God will reach one person after another until God's number of those he intends to reach will be fulfilled. And the, Christ, and the church will be full according to God's measure at that time. In 21 centuries of the church's existence, thousands of kings and governments have risen and fallen. Ruthless dictators have driven the church underground only to see it spread with greater influence than ever. Millions of teachers have tried to outwit believers through their philosophies, but those teachers are dead. And the church still meets, and the church still preaches, and the church still sings, and the church still witnesses, and the church still sends out missionaries. And every day, tens of thousands of hearts say yes to Christ around the world because they've seen his glory and they're filling up his body. And through the church, God is calling each one of us not just to a great work, but the greatest of all works, the joyous task of declaring to all mankind and all the powers of the universe, Jesus Christ is king over all and the savior of all who believe. And God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have had our eyes opened year after year to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, who today will provide food for us at a meal, provide a wheelchair for us when our bodies are sick, will provide families in which we can be raised or foster homes in which we can be nurtured. Thank you that through the love of Christ, orphans, Lord, have meals and education. And through the love of Christ, those that are in hopeless slums and those, Lord, who, who are, whose bodies are stained with addiction and years of guilt 
can be cleansed in an instant and filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, can be clothed with the perfection of the Son of God, and will have the promise one day they will sit with Jesus on his throne. I pray today, God, you will fill up the body of Christ. Even you would bring someone into the body of Christ today to know the head of Christ, to know the King, the ruler of all, the Savior of all who believe. Would you bring someone today, God, into your church into your body, into your life, to be satisfied with eternal, unending, uninterrupted love. God, we've never wanted to be a part of this task more. So fill us new with resurrection power. Fill us new, O oh God, with resurrection power. May our tongues speak with resurrection power. May our minds believe with resurrection power. May our hearts be patient May our souls be purged with resurrection power. May our feet be moved and fueled by resurrection power. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.